peace be with you. Peace be with you. If you want to head back to your seating area, your pew, and then open your Bible with me to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, where we'll be reading verses 28 to 34 here in a moment, Mark 12, 28 to 34. Well, it is, as we've already said, our church's sixth anniversary. Our church is officially six years old. And if you've been around here in years past, you'll likely recall that we uh, often will uh, preach a sermon outside of our series in commemoration of our anniversary here. We usually preach from a text that speaks something of our vision, mission, values as a church. I remember a couple of years ago, we were preaching through Amos. I think Amos 7 is where we would have fallen on during our church's anniversary. And I, one of the verses in Amos 7 says something along the lines of, I hate, I despise your celebrations. Uh, so we, we didn't do that uh, that week. Uh, we decided to take a little break from Amos for that Sunday. However, this morning, our text speaks directly to something of our mission as a church. And so we thought we'd just continue right along in our exposition of Mark's gospel. Well, as it is our, our church's sixth anniversary, I've been looking back on the last six years so appreciatively, so fondly, so, so thankfully. I'm thankful for what the Lord has done. Of course, if, if he doesn't build the house, we labor in vain. And we've seen him move and provide in his grace and providence over the last six years again and again. And I'm, I'm also thankful for uh, what many of you have done. I'm thankful for your labor, for, for the hours, the blood, the sweat, the tears that so many of you have poured into this church, and also that we might have a faithful gospel witness here in our city, and so that those who, who walk through our doors might know the love of Christ as it's tangibly felt and demonstrated in this community. And that is a core part of our vision and mission here at Veritas. We want to be a community that faithfully represents the kingdom of God. We want our culture, our community to faithfully represent the kingdom of God here on earth in Dayton, Ohio. That's a, a kind of summary of our vision there. And so our mission through which we seek to accomplish that vision is to simply be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. To be and make disciples of Jesus Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus is to, is to simply be someone who follows Jesus. To make a disciple, uh, to be a disciple is to be someone who follows Jesus. To make disciples is to help other people follow Jesus. And that, that mission has kind of two aspects. It, to be and make disciples of Jesus Christ has two aspects to it. One is how this mission relates to the great commission that Jesus has given us. Jesus' great commission can be found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And there he says, Go into all the earth, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And our mission to, to make disciples, to help others follow Jesus, flows from Jesus' own instructions there. But then our mission, our mission to be disciples of Jesus relates to more of what we call the great commandment. We don't just want to help other people follow Jesus. We want to follow Jesus ourselves. And, and that just begs the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus? If we really had to boil it down and sum it up, if, if we really had to 
to distillate all of Jesus' instructions and commands for what it means to follow him, how would we do that? And thankfully, we don't really need to guess at this because Jesus did it for us in the conversation recorded in our text this morning. So with that said, let's look at God's word. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture, let's listen with reverence, with joy to the word of our God in Mark 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would anoint the reading and proclamation of your word now with the presence and power of your spirit, that we might be your people transformed more and more into Christ-likeness, that we might represent him well, that we might follow him well, that we might be made like Christ in every way. We pray that as a result of of the proclamation of this text, the, the Spirit would so penetrate and pierce our hearts that we would be a people who grow in loving you with our whole hearts and our neighbors as ourselves. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, recall with me that in this text, we are in Tuesday of Holy Week, Tuesday, Tuesday of Passion Week, and Last week, we called it Tussle Tuesday, since all of these scribes and elders and Pharisees and Herodians and Sadducees have been coming up to Jesus to challenge him and antagonize him. And and apparently, during the, the tussle we considered last week, there was an onlooker, a scribe who's also a Pharisee, we find out in Matthew's gospel, the scribe who was close by, and this scribe witnessed Jesus' dispute with the Sadducees and was impressed by his answer. And so this scribe approaches after this scuffle with his own question. Perhaps this question was, in, in one sense, meant to test Jesus. But what you notice about this scribe, as we read here, this, this authorized theologian of the day, this Pharisee, this expert in the Scriptures and the law, what stands out about him, in contrast to all the rest that we've seen so far, is that he seems to be sincere in his question. He truly wants to know Jesus' answer, and he truly wants to engage in, a, in something of a real dialogue here. And his question, according to the ESV, is this, which commandment is the most important of all? If we were to translate the Greek a little more literally than that, we might put it this way, which is the first command of all? 
That would be a more literal way of translating Jesus' question here. Which is the first command of all? And part of what that question is getting at is this question of rank. If we were to rank all of God's commands throughout the law in terms of importance, which would be the first? Which would be the first? And of course, this is kind of a natural thing for us to try to do as human beings. Uh, We really like ranking things in terms of of importance and and whatnot as a way of organizing, categorizing, emphasizing. Uh, We do this with almost everything. We do this with with, uh, empires and kingdoms and nations throughout history. It's a very common debate in in, in historical circles about which was the greatest empire to ever exist, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. Is it the Ottoman Empire, the British Empire? Is it the United States? There have been questions like this about monarchs. uh, As as, uh, this might be a conversation that we hear a, a, a little more of, the passing of Queen Elizabeth, who is the greatest queen or king or ruler of all time. There have been conversations like this about philosophers. Who was the greatest? Was it Plato? Was it Aristotle? And whatnot. And, and, and there's one, actually, that probably, I've probably spent a little too much time considering. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? I'm not the only one who spent too much time on this. Uh, not long ago, I watched uh, an over an hour and a half video kind of detailing uh, all of these stats, history, longevity, injuries, wins, losses, records, and all to try to determine who is the greatest basketball player of all time, MJ or LeBron. And the conclusion was what you might expect. MJ is the GOAT, y'all. He's the GOAT. We all know this. But this is a natural thing for us to do as human beings. And with that, the rabbis, the scribes, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they're no exception. They did this. They had these kinds of conversations about the law and and about God's commands. And so this was a very common question. At that time in Jewish history, uh, we we know from the study of history here that that the Jewish community had looked at the entirety of God's law, and they'd been having this conversation. They'd looked at the entirety of God's law, and there they had found 613 commands— And out of those 613 commands, they had found 365 prohibitions, things that they were not to do, and 248 positive commands, things they were to do. And out of all of these commands, they began to to categorize which commands were what they call weightier or heavier, and which commands were were lighter. Heavier and weightier commands uh, made more of a demand on someone's life and someone's will, someone's actions. Uh, and lighter commands made less of a demand on someone's life and will and actions. You can see the scribe here making this exact distinction when he says that the two commands Jesus gives are far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. That was his way of saying that these commands were weightier than those commands. And of course, with these sorts of conversations going on, it was only a matter of time until they began to consider which command is the weightiest of all. Out of all the commands... Which is the heaviest? Which ranks the highest in terms of importance? But then, in conversations like that, in such conversations, one's not only getting at the question of rank, but a question of essence. Which of God's commands, if one obeys, will they then, by obeying it, take care of all the rest as well? Right? So what command of God is kind of, as it were, upstream from all the others, so that if one obeys that command, they will then by nature obey all the others since they're downstream from that primary essential command. That's why Jesus, in answering this question in Matthew twenty-two forty, says that on these two commands hangs all the law and the prophets. 
Obey these commands and the rest will be in the bag, he says. Disobey these commands and you'll disobey all the rest, if not in letter, then in spirit. St. Augustine once said, love God and do what you please. Because in all reality, if you get first things first, the rest will inevitably follow in time. And so with Jesus' answer here, he's giving us the first of all commands, both in terms of importance and essence. And with that, we would do well to pay attention to what he's saying here. Because this is essential, he's saying, for what it means to follow him. These two commands, he says, are foundation for all the rest. These are two columns that uphold the entire life of following Christ and honoring God. And so with that, what are these two commands? First, Jesus says that we are to love God with our whole selves. We are to love God with our whole selves. In verses 29 and 30, Jesus answered, the most important is, or again, more literally, the first of all is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And so Jesus answers by quoting an Old Testament text, a scripture text called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6. We read it earlier. We call it the Shema because the the first word translated as listen or hear in our English translations in our English translations, is the Hebrew word Shema. And, and the Shema was a crucial text for the people of Israel all the way back in the times of Moses, up to the times of Jesus, and even still today. Uh, it, it, it's, it's Israel's creedal statement. In the same way that we say the Apostles' Creed when we gather, or might say the Apostles' Creed in a, in a devotional setting, or say the Lord's Prayer daily, Jews say the Shema uh, many of them twice daily, uh, every day, uh, many Jews across the world. And the first things out of their mouth is Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And that, that creedal statement asserts both basic monotheism, uh, that there is only one God, not multiple gods. There's one God, which we Christians, we profess wholeheartedly. We believe that there's only one God who is three persons. There's not three gods. There's only one God, but that God is three persons. But then also the Shema asserts the exclusivity of this God, that this God alone deserves glory and honor and praise as God. He alone is worthy of worship as God. And then this command associated with this creedal statement we call the Shema flows from it. Because Yahweh is the only true God, and because he alone deserves glory as God, you shall love this God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might, and with all your strength. We are to love God with our hearts, Jesus says, the Shema says. Of course, part of the issue when we hear a phrase like that is that we think that any reference to the heart is simply synonymous with just mere emotions or feelings. And that comes from more of a a kind of Western and American conception of the heart. The Jewish and biblical conception of the heart views it as the seat of the entire personality, as the the innermost you from which all of you flows. The heart is the deepest part from which all of your emotions and thoughts and intentions and motivations and words and actions and everything flows. We're to love God with all of our hearts, he says. And he says we're to love God with all of our souls. That is, we're, we're to love God with this life and vitality within us. 
We're also to love God with all of our minds, with our, our intellects, with our understanding. And we're to love God with all of our, our strength, that is to say, with our will and with our bodily actions. And, and I've seen in the past, people really miss the force for the trees uh, in, in, in trying to define each of these parts of ourselves with which we're to love God. However, the, the main point of all of this seems to be that we are to love God with the whole of ourselves. There's, there's not one part of ourselves that we are permitted or called to let remain aloof from God. We're to love Him with the whole of who we are, with our intentions, our feelings, our thoughts, our intellect, our motivations, our senses, our decisions, our words, our deeds, every part of ourselves from what we see on the surface down to the deepest level of who we are, all of it is to be abandoned to devoted love to God. And part of what this might have to say to some of us then is that it might correct some of our more kind of mere volitional views of love, right? One of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, does this in Mere Christianity. He has just a kind of a mere volitional view of love. And some of us might be tempted to view love as merely being a, a choice of the will, apart from any affection or feeling, as if love was just a choice to act in a way that is unselfish, apart from any affections or motivations or desires at all. If that were the case, if that's what love was, well, the Apostle Paul could not say in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, that if he gives away all that he has and he delivers up his body to be burned but has not love, he gains nothing. Apparently, according to Paul, you could do all the right things, but without right desires and motivations and affections, it can't properly be called Christian love, right? There's a sense in which true love is bound up with affection and intention and motivations all within our inner person. Otherwise, we would not be loving God with all of our hearts, soul, minds, and strength. Then again, this command, as it's stated here, might also correct some of us who have a more kind of sentimental view of love, right? Not just volitional, but sentimental. Some of us might be tempted to to kind of separate love from our words, our actions, our decisions, and make it more of a matter of kind of abstract feeling, viewing love as a mere kind of psychological or emotional state, separated from devotion and action and obedience. And sometimes you, you might hear professing Christians almost, almost excuse disobedience to God by saying that, well, God knows my heart. He knows that I love Him, even if my actions dishonor Him. Friends, we can't say such a thing if we have a fully formed view of biblical love. We won't say such things. We can't separate love from one's words, actions, decisions, not if we're to love God with the whole of who we are. In fact, as we consider what it means to love God and to obey this command, it's worth considering the context in which the Shema is stated. Again, we read it earlier for the call to worship, but I'd like to read it again here. And look at Deuteronomy 6 with me, beginning at verse 1, it says this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, this is Moses speaking, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, Israel... And be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, 
and a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Friends, we... We don't have time to get into all that's there. There is so much deep theology and wonderful application there. But as an overview, I I, I want you to notice that this call to love God with all of our hearts and souls and might, it's given in this larger context that gives some texture to what it looks like to live a life of love to God. This command to love God is given within a context of a call to know God's word to obey God's word, and to pass God's word on to the coming generations. If you want to know what it looks like to love God, that's a really good place to start. Bind the word of God to your heart. That's that's a good place to start. Bind the word of God to your heart, Moses says. Meaning, know God's word. Be a devoted student of God's word. Devote yourself to hearing God's word, to studying God's word, to meditating on God's word, to memorizing God's word. Read it, mark it, inwardly digest it. But then not only that, devote yourself to obeying it. Devote yourself to applying it to your life. He, he says, don't just know God's word, but be careful to do God's word. So I've already said, love to God cannot be separated from action. It cannot be separated from obedience. Jesus himself, John 14, 15, said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The apostle John in 1 John 5, 3 says, this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Love to God cannot be separated from obedience. Devote yourself to knowing and to obeying the word of God. But then not only that, Part of what it means to give texture to this call to to love God is that we also pass God's word on. If if he is our highest treasure, if God is our highest treasure, if he is what is most precious to us, then we will pass on the words of his mouth to our children and to the coming generations. For you parents, as you read Deuteronomy 6, a good question to ask yourself. You speak to your children concerning the scriptures when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, when, when you sit in your house around the dinner table, do you just talk about what's on TV you, or do you redeem the time? Do you, do you take time and opportunity to speak of God's word? That's a, that is a perfect time to read God's word as a family. You're, you're together, everyone's seated, redeem the time, use your dinner time to read and discuss God's word together. When you walk by the way or Uh, more like when you drive home from church on Sunday? Do you merely talk about what you're going to have for lunch? Or do you take time, do you take the opportunity to chat about the the content of the the text and the sermon or the lesson in class? It's a great time to do it. It's it's still fresh in their memories. Before you go to bed tonight, probably the most chaotic hour of the day, before you go to bed tonight, parents, or before your kids go to bed at night, parents, do you, do you take that opportunity to help teach your children? Take that opportunity to, to teach them the Lord's prayer and to teach them how to pray. I know it can be chaotic, but take opportunities 
to kind of weave in the scriptures into the daily rhythms of your home and thereby live a life of love toward God. For those of us who don't have children, you're not exempt from this, from this here. It takes a village and all of that. Are you partnering with parents in this kind of ministry? Are you in some way, however small, doesn't need to be a big thing, are you working to, to pass on the faith to all of these, these smaller humans running around in our midst? Are you, are you helping, encouraging, engaging these young ones in, in some way, shape, or form with the truth of God's word? You can do this in formal ways. You can do this in informal ways. You can serve in Veritas Kids, help with a catechism class. You can take an interest in kids in your community group. You can simply befriend one of the young ones in our midst and invest in their lives. There's a number of ways that you can invest in this kind of ministry here, which is so important as we seek to pass on the truth of God's word to the coming generations and all because we're called to love God with the entirety of our being. But the next, Jesus says that there's a second command. There's a second command that he must mention in this, this question of rank and essence of all of God's commands. If, if you look at verse 31, Jesus takes us back to Leviticus 19.18, and he says the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, we should recognize here that Jesus, he's not simply just trying to get another one in there, right? Uh, as if he couldn't really choose between them, uh, the, the first greatest command or the second, and he's just trying to get a twofer here. That's not what he's doing. It's, it's not as if these are just unrelated commands that he can't uh, choose between. These are commands that have to go together. They are intertwined. They are intimately related and intertwined. They're like conjoined twins or like a, uh, the one flesh union of a husband and wife. They, they dwell, as it were, in a one flesh union. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew's relation to this conversation and event, that when he introduces the second commandment, he says, and the second is like the first, right? The second, the second greatest commandment is like the first greatest commandment. The Apostle John, he picks up on this teaching from Jesus in 1 John 4.20 where he argues that loving God and not loving others is unthinkable. He says that if anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, he is a liar. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You see, loving God necessarily leads to loving those made in his image. You can't love God and not love those made in his image. Not for very long, at least. And yet at the same time, these two commands and the requirements of these commands are not necessarily the same. They're, they're connected, but they're not identical, or else Jesus wouldn't have made a point to mention the second commandment. The first is still the first. It's always first because it takes precedence and priority. It's still upstream from every command, even the second greatest command. But the second greatest command is still monumentally important because it's the necessary horizontal expression of the first greatest command. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, it is an ordinary and natural thing to love and care for oneself. So I know that there are exceptions to that. There are. But ordinarily, for most of us, our problem, our main problem in life is not that we love ourselves too little. The human beings are naturally prone to want what's best for themselves. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It is a perfectly healthy and good thing to desire, is to want the best, to love yourself. We want to flourish and be happy. 
That's one of the chief aims of our lives is our own flourishing, our own happiness. And that's good. But Jesus says we're to want the same for our neighbors and we're to order our lives in such a way that we pursue the same ends for them. We're to want the best for our neighbors. We're to want them to flourish and be happy. And just as that's one of the the chiefest aims and pursuits in our lives for ourselves, so it should be for our neighbors. Now, very common question that comes up when you talk about this kind of thing is, who is our neighbor? We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. Who is our neighbor? You know your Bible. You know that's a dangerous question to ask Jesus. But it, it includes those you very well might expect. It includes your family. If you're married, you're called to love your neighbor And if we're considering the the neighbor in closest proximity to you, it would be the one you share a bed with, right? If you have kids, it would be the the little ones just the next room over. They are your neighbors. And in one sense, they will inevitably be the most direct and immediate recipients of your obedience to this command. But then also, you're to love your fellow Christians and your church family. So we read in in Mark 3 earlier this year, Jesus in one sense in, in that setting, let God's family take precedence even over his own nuclear family. And God's family ought to be a priority for us in obedience to this command. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians 6.10, that as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and, he says, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are to be a top priority in our efforts to love our neighbors as ourselves. And then really... Our neighbor is, in one sense, just anyone that you come in contact with. It's the people next door and across the street. It's the people down the hallway or in the next cubicle over at work. It's the people you see at the coffee shop every day and at the grocery store. It's the people we know and see all around us all the time, regardless of whether they're Christians or atheists or Muslims, whether they're Democrats or Republicans whether they identify as male or female or something we couldn't affirm according to a biblical worldview, we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what's more is that Jesus even goes as far to include our enemies in this category of neighbor. Those who hate us, those who speak ill of us, those that think that we're on the wrong side of history, those people who despise us and everything we stand for, Jesus says that we are even obligated to love them as we love ourselves. Even for our enemies and adversaries, we're to pray for them. We're to be kind and patient toward them. And if and when it's within our power to do good for them, we're to do it. Now again, just as it was helpful to look at the, the kind of larger context of Deuteronomy 6, Give some definition to what it looks like to love God with our whole selves. It might be helpful to look at the wider context of Leviticus 19. See this this set of instructions there giving definition to what it might look like to love our neighbors as ourselves. You might think that Leviticus is a a book all about goats and gore and all the rest of it, but you look at Leviticus 19, you see very practical ways in which you can live a life of love toward your neighbors. Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. You find instructions for providing the poor with their necessities out of your own resources. That's what it looks like to love our neighbor, to care for them when they're in need, caring for the poor. In 1911, you find commands to not steal or to be dishonest with your neighbor in any way. Stealing or being dishonest with your neighbor 
is not loving toward them. In 1913, we find instruction that we're to be fair in all of our business dealings. In our business dealings, we're, we're not to cheat others. We're not to overwork those employed by us. We're not to oppress them in any way. In 1914, we find that we're not to harm or take advantage of any of those suffering under any sort of disability. The blind, the deaf, the disabled should be treated fairly and charitably by us. In 1915, we find that we're to be impartial and to deal justly with all. We, we, we shouldn't deal unjustly with the poor or the rich in preference for one or the other. In 1916, we, we find that we're not to engage in gossip or slander of our neighbors. And also in 16, we find that we're not to intentionally or carelessly put our neighbors in danger. Uh, in verses 17 or 18, uh, we find instructions to not hate our neighbor or to hold on to grudges against our neighbors or to take vengeance against our neighbors. But then also in 18, if necessary, we're to rebuke our neighbor for his own good. And these are very, very practical ways in which we can love our families, our brothers and sisters in Christ, our neighbors at work, in the neighborhood, at various third places that we frequent, even our enemies and adversaries, as we love ourselves. Of course, my friends, I would be remiss if I didn't point out here that none of us have ever loved in the way that we ought to love. None of us have ever loved God with every fiber and ounce of our being. We've never loved God like He deserves from us. None of us have, have perfectly loved our neighbors, even those in our own households in church, let alone our enemies, as ourselves. And in fact, we, we can even admire and recognize the truth and beauty and goodness of these commands and yet never fulfill them and thus still remain outside the kingdom and saving reign of God. Isn't that true of the scribe in our passage? He recognizes the truth of what Jesus says here. He affirms and agrees with Jesus' teaching. And yet, Jesus still devastatingly says of him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, at first glance, that seems like a commendation, and it is a commendation. But still, this would have been a devastating blow to this scribe. Not far. He's a devoted student of the scriptures. He's a circumcised Jew. He's an expert in the law. Not far. He is as in as in can get. But that's not what Jesus says. And it's devastating because being close to the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom of God, is still to be eternally lost and without God. And thus, while Jesus is, in a way, in a sense, commending the scribe, he's also condemning the scribe. C.S. Lewis once said, as in arithmetic, there's only one right answer to the sum, and all other answers are wrong, even while some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. So while our scribe friend here is, is nearer being right than others, Jesus still gives his devastating judgment that he is not in the kingdom of God. How does one enter the kingdom of God? The answer is sitting right in front of the scribe. He's sitting right in front of us this morning. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the key to the kingdom of God. He's the door and the entrance into God's saving reign. Because, my friends, while we haven't kept these commands, 
Jesus has. And yet, as the only one who has ever kept these commands to love God with his whole self and to love his neighbors as himself, he went to the cross as a sinner who didn't. And on that cross, Jesus died like a sinner and thereby took the penalty and punishment that you and I deserve for having hated God and mistreated our neighbors and for having exalted ourselves over God and above our fellow image bearers. Jesus went to the cross by the command of God because he loved God and he went to the cross for the sake of us so that we might be saved from our sins, so that he might pay the penalty we deserve for our sin and so that his perfect record of love could be credited to our account and all so that we might be made acceptable to this God who demands our love. Friends, if you want to know what love looks like, if you want to to see the ultimate display and demonstration of love, you won't find it in any mere human expression. If you want to see love, this is it. The cross is it. As the Apostle John writes in 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Friend, our love is nothing to write home about. It's not impressive. We are not impressive. But his love, his love is marvelous and impressive. It is infinite and glorious. As the hymn writer said, could we with ink the ocean fill or were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. And nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. God's love is magnificent and marvelous. It is infinite and divine and it has been wisely and wonderfully displayed for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. Then it doesn't stop there. That's not all that needs to be said, because in all reality, friends, love begets love. Love begets love. Love beckons love. Love breeds more love. And as we are those who who behold and believe on and boast in the love of God for us, we are also inevitably going to be transformed into the kind of people who love Him and our neighbors in return. As the Apostle John goes on to say in 1 John, we love Because he first loved us, his love begets and beckons and breeds our love to him and to our neighbors in return. It's no secret that those who love well are those who have been first loved well. And friends, there's no one who has been better loved than us, than Christians. We have been loved with an everlasting love. We have been loved with a sacrificial love. We have been loved with an enduring, persevering, faithful love. We have been loved with a saving love. We have been loved with an infinite, divine love. No one has experienced love like we have experienced love, friends. No one is loved like we are loved. No one is beloved like God's very own sons and daughters. And so while our love is nothing, When compared to the great and magnificent love of God, our love, when painted against the backdrop of this terrible world, ought to look extraordinary and exceptional and supernatural because it is. 
Our love will set us apart from this cold and hateful and selfish world, and it will be a credit to our message. This message of God's love displayed in the person and work of Jesus Christ for sinners like us. And so all, may we love one another. May we love our God since we have been so loved by our God. Let's pray together. Father, seal this word upon our hearts that we might be a people who, who so behold and are amazed by the matchless love of Jesus Christ. And as that takes place, would you move in us, even this morning, move in us to transform us and conform us more and more to Christ-likeness, that we might be a people who go out into this world and display and demonstrate love for you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love for our neighbors as ourselves, that we might witness and represent Christ well in the time that you have given us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.